0: All right, guys. Well, let's pray again. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you that we get to open your word. We are all people who are made in your image. It's the only explanation for why we experience things the way we experience them, for why we have a conscience, for why we have rationality, for why we can read your word with hope to understand it because you have made us, you've made us to know you, you've made us to image you. Being made in your image, we have the responsibility to reflect you to the world. And you've given us your word as a guide to do that. So Lord, I pray that we would be able to empty all the other thoughts from our head. We'd be able to get rid of every other distraction, every, every, every other concern. Did teal team do more verses tonight? Did the purple population come back? All those things. Just put everything aside, and I pray that we'd be able to focus on you, on your word, your truth, and that you would open our eyes, open our hearts to receive, to love, and to live your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. (laughs) So, last night... We were grounded in reality. That was the whole point of last night. You guys remember I told you that God has revealed himself in nature, in scripture, and in Christ. These are the three primary ways that God has revealed himself. And what we did last year is we looked at worldviews. Remember, fancy talk, the worldview. Everybody has a worldview. Everybody has to have a set of beliefs in place before they examine Any evidence. Without these beliefs in place, you have no standard for what is possible, desirable, impossible, fantasy, fiction, any of that. You come with a set of beliefs. And we looked at how that worldview is grounded ultimately in an ultimate authority, you have to appeal to one ultimate standard to justify your worldview about reality and knowledge and the way you should live in this world, what is good, what is right, what is sinful. And those two standards were either man is the measure of all things or God in the Bible is the measure of all things. I don't know if anybody thought more about that and thought, well, hey, that's a circular argument. That's a fallacy in logic. Anybody? was like, that's begging the question, good sir. Nobody had that? Well, all right, you guys rock. Okay, so begging the question is, I don't know how many of you have seen, I'm gonna get in trouble for this. How many of you have seen Big Daddy with Adam Sandler? You remember? He t- <laughs> only my generation. There's a movie you don't need to see, but there's a scene in it where an irresponsible adult gets ready to try and adopt a six-year-old, and he's playing the six-year-old is playing a card game with some of his friends. And... The six-year-old's like, I win. And the guy is like, no, why? Should you possibly win the game? And he goes, well, because I win. And he's like, well, this is the name of this game. I win. Okay, that's a circular argument. The kid is saying, I win because I win. You see the, the fallacy? He's not connecting it. He's not grounding anything. So if I tell you the ultimate authority that you should have for your life is God's word, why? Because God's word tells me you should. You see? That's circular. Do you guys get what I'm saying? It's God's word because the Bible says it's God's word. Well, here's the nature of an ultimate authority, and everybody does this, okay? Every ultimate authority has to be a circular argument. Because if I could go outside of my ultimate authority to prove my ultimate authority, guess what? It's not ultimate anymore, so if I tell you, well, no, 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 okay, this is why I know the Bible is God's word, because over here in archaeology, we did this dig in Israel, and this is what we discovered. We discovered the Qatef Hinnom scroll, and it's like the oldest, and we saw the, the priestly blessing of Aaron. And I go, well, then archaeology is my ultimate standard. And ultimately, if somebody unearths something that contradicts what I think it should— then I'm like, uh (laughs) uh-oh, or I say, uh, well, I know the Bible is God's word because the Bible describes this about the earth and science tells me that that's true, All right? Then science is my ultimate standard. Of course, that's a fallacy because if I say science is my standard, that's really me, my own brain, okay? But scripture, everybody has to do that. If I ask you what your ultimate authority is, which you remember how to discover that, how do you know what you know? Eventually, if you ask that, well, how do you know that? How do you know that? How do you know that? You'll get down to bedrock, the belief you stand on to justify all your other beliefs and how you interact with the world. And you can't go any deeper than bedrock. You can't go any higher than your ultimate authority. It has to explain itself, and that's exactly what Scripture tells us about God. Have you ever heard this in the Bible? We call him the Lord Most High There's a reason he's the most high. There's the reason he's the one with the ultimate authority. If you go to Hebrews 6.13, when God tries to confirm to Abraham, not tries, he does. When he confirms to Abraham that he can be trusted, the author of Hebrews tells us, for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. God is the ultimate circle. Really, God is the circle. And so you can't get any higher than God, so he had better be your ultimate authority. Otherwise, you end up in an infinite regress. Okay, so that's one. We also then talked about worldview coherence. Coherence, how something sticks together. If there's an internal contradiction, it can't be true. It disobeys the laws of logic, and that's something common to all of our experience. So what we did is I didn't, I didn't argue hypothetically with the unbeliever, somebody who doesn't have God as their ultimate authority, and I didn't say, well, look at this evidence and look at this evidence. Instead, what we did is to say, I'm gonna take your beliefs about reality and we're gonna test if it is coherent, if it's logical, if it's whole. And we discovered that man cannot explain on a purely materialistic, that the reality is just made up of matter in motion You can't explain the laws of logic. You can't explain thoughts. You can't explain love. You can't explain morality. You can't explain immaterial things that we all run into. Reality is material and immaterial. And we saw how the Bible justifies that. And one that I didn't bring to you last night, actually, uh, uniquely, the Bible describes how mankind can interact with the physical and non-physical world. And we looked at Genesis 1, which I heard a lot of you say in that one tonight, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Very good. And so we know that God exists, and then the separate material world exists, but how does man, who is made up of matter, how does man interact with both of those? And in history, Plato, have you guys ever heard of Plato? Plato. Not Pluto, the non-planet. Plato, the philosopher? Okay. So Plato had this concept he recognized. He's like, well, we're people, we're in a physical world, but there's also this this, this realm of ideas. And so he understood the problem. He's like, there's immaterial and material. But Plato, what he couldn't do is he couldn't say why they connect, why man is able to interact in both and so he, he had a rescuing device. We talked about those. He had a rescuing device where he said, just give me this one. I don't have to explain why they connect. Just give me a myth. Just let me say that they, ex- that they connect somewhere. Well, you don't have to do that with the Bible. If you just go one chapter later in Genesis, Genesis chapter two, this is zooming back in on the sixth day of creation. After we go through the seven days in Genesis one, it backs up and zooms in on day six. And we see a little more closely zoomed in the formation of man. In verse 7, it says, Then Yahweh God, your translation might say. You guys want to know a cool thing? Have you ever wondered, like, Lord, when it's in your Bible and it's all caps, but like L-O-R-N-D are all in caps? That means Yahweh. That's like the proper name of God. If it's just one capital L, it's just Adonai. It's just Lord. Okay. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Every other creation, God is just like, boom, exist, and they do. But with man, he forms him out of the dust of the ground, breathes into him the breath of life, and man becomes a living soul. And we know from the New Testament, Paul says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord mankind is made up our nature itself is immaterial and material what plato struggled with with all of his mighty learning the bible tells us on the second chapter right away the biblical worldview is the only worldview that explains our experience and beyond that we talked about the uniformity of nature you guys remember that There should be no reason that scientists would be able to say that one experiment has a bearing on another experiment because nature is just so uniform, but the Big Bang has to be explained by pure chaos. So how do you get uniformity from chaos? And I forgot to give you guys this one, but just to illustrate the worldview doesn't work, evolution. Okay, evolution in and of itself. I don't have to go to the fossil record. I don't have to go and argue about some paleontologist who has six degrees and knows way more than I do. Just think about the theory of evolution. You guys know the basic outline of how this works, right? Single cells moving from simple to complex, how do they do that, anybody? How does a single cell organism get more complex? Somebody had this, no? Bueller, another movie you don't have to see, okay. A single cell organism, when it's replicating itself, there will be an error in the copying mechanism and some of its genes will be mutated. Is this sounding familiar? You get a random mutation. Most of these mutations are bad. And then that cell dies very quickly. That mutation is not passed on. But what happens if the mutation is good, beneficial, right? If you have a blind organism and one day it miraculously develops eyeballs, that would enhance its survivability, right? Does that make sense? So you have little genetic random mutations, and the beneficial ones stick around, and eventually you get more complex. It it seems pretty logical, right? I mean, I think it does, right? Okay, so you move, you get a random mutation, it's good, you stay, survival of the fittest. Random mutations make you more fit, you stay around, you pass on your genes, voila. Okay, what's the problem? The uniformity of nature. The people who tell you, I believe in evolution because I believe in science. To do science, you need to rely on the uniformity of nature. For the theory of evolution, you have to rely on the non-uniformity of nature. Do you see the contradiction? The scientist says, okay, just give me this one, just like Plato. Just give me this one. Something happens and nature like skips a beat, there's a glitch in the matrix, and all of a sudden there's a beneficial mutation. Forget the fact that we haven't ever observed information being added to genes making them more complex, information being added to DNA, it's usually a duplication that results in loss of data. But the very concept of the random genetic mutation itself is nature not acting uniform. The worldview collapses. You can't say on the one hand, I believe in science, where everything makes sense, and we have laws of physics, and we have laws of nature. And then say, I believe in evolution, where the laws have to get broken for every new mutation of a species until you get to us. It collapses. It ends in absolute foolishness. But the Bible explains the uniformity of nature. It explains the nature of man. And there are many, 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 many places. I didn't want to inundate you with just like passage after passage after passage, like life hack. Sometimes preachers want to make their point, and so they just like throw out a ton of verses that you're not writing down and you're not going to investigate later. So you're like, wow, that sounds really biblical. Okay? If I don't want to do that, I could. It's everywhere. Another place, Genesis 8, right here, explains why the universe is is uh, is uniform why nature is uniform and we looked at some last night we looked at Colossians one sixteen and 17 Hebrews 1 3 Ephesians 1 11 but even here back in Genesis God tells Noah while the earth remains seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease done uniformity of nature the Bible explains it no other worldview is able to explain it. And that's why I don't have to have all the degrees. You don't have to have all the degrees. You just step inside the worldview and say, if what you're saying about reality is true, you can't know anything. You can't justify any of your beliefs. And it collapses. And men become absolutely foolish. And so what happens? Romans 1, 18 being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And that is true for everybody who does not submit to God and what he has revealed himself about himself in nature. He has revealed himself in nature. But tonight, we're going to look at how God has revealed himself in scripture. How God has revealed himself in scripture. Okay, I told you guys last night, I'm not treating you with kid gloves. I'm not doing cartoons up here. We're going to bear our philosophical fangs, and we're going to get into this, all right? So we're handling the problem, oh, that's your interpretation, or the idea that the Bible is this mystical book, and it's up for interpretation. Have you guys ever heard anything like that? The Bible's up for interpretation. What does that even mean? It's reader response hermeneutics, and it's dumb. Okay, so here's the deal. Communication, we have to take a step back and look at our presuppositions, our beliefs about communication. <coughs> the first, I'm sorry, that was awful, right in there. The first part, communication happens. Communication happens. I know this seems really obvious, but just think about it. This needs, this needs to, to be belabored. Communication happens. Why did y'all show up here tonight at six? or between 6 and 6.30, or sometime after. Boom! Thank you, P. Fitz, because you were told, because the idea was communicated to you. You know, the reason I have a laptop is because men were able to communicate their findings because we were able to get through electricity exists to the making of microchips, to the advertising of the price, to the, hey, you don't have to pay for it all now. Come get a laptop, Joey. My other laptop broke. And that's why communication happens. And so in our experience, we understand communication Happens, okay? Hopefully this will be clear why that's important Communication happens undeniable and because communication happens now we have to examine its constituent parts The parts of communication. There are three parts in all communication. What is communication? Communication is One mind conveying an idea to another mind Pretty basic, okay, but how does one mind get to another mind? telepathy isn't a thing And I don't know if you're a conspiracy theorist. I I just don't believe in them. You have to show me later. Telepathy, directly communicating your thoughts. That's not how it works. So you need to have a medium. You need to have a go-between. So we would call this, mind number one, author. The go-between, the text, okay? And the text doesn't have to be something written, something punched out on your phone. A text can be something like a baby's cry, Right? I've got one of those. He tells me when he's hungry. That little author communicates to this reader. That's a third part. Author, text, reader explains something about himself. Text can be like, oh, I'm super sad. You just see my body language, okay? Do you understand the concept? One mind has to employ a medium, a text, in order for the reader, the person to understand, and then communication happens. Author, text, reader. Any questions? That's a dangerous question. Okay. <clears throat> so author text reader and we know that communication happens. Okay? So we have to ask the question, where is meaning located between author, text and reader? Okay? Where is meaning located? And you probably you know this, all right? I know it sounds really redundant, And you know this and you do it all the time. Have you ever been talking with a friend and they get all mad at you for something you thought was a joke and you say, that's not what I meant, right? We've all had this experience. Or somebody else and you get all mad at them and they chase you down. They're like, no, 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 that's not what I mean. Meaning is assumed in all of those locations to come from the author. You're saying you misunderstood my text you as the reader didn't get the text that I as the author created our communication has been missed because you didn't understand the text so there are really if anybody goes to college and goes for a linguistic degree in English major you're gonna run into crazy stuff crazy literary interpreting devices things called deconstructionism um, Jacques Derrida. You're going to run into, man, Frenchmen. There's a lot of really dangerous Frenchmen post-enlightenment. You're going to run into deconstructionism, where you basically take a text and you try and make it mean nothing at all until you come away with nothing. But the biggest ones that we're going to run into are the idea that the reader creates the meaning in communication and the idea that the text is not derived from the author, which is weird. So the reader getting the meaning. Does the reader create the meaning in communication between author, text, and reader? And you're shaking your head, no. But this is, that, this is that moment in Bible study when somebody asks, what does this verse mean to you? You guys ever seen that, ever heard that, anyone? Pastor Andy has probably never asked you that question because he loves you. But In other places, they might ask you, what does this verse mean to you? Or, in our culture, what is your truth? Sorry. What is your truth? What does this mean to you? And the idea is that you can just somehow create your own meaning. But once again, we can step inside of the worldview and say, if the reader is responsible for discovering the meaning of communication, no communication could ever happen. So imagine that I send you a note, okay? I write you a note and I say to come to Teen Week at 6.15, and you get that note. And then you have to create the meaning. The meaning is not in my mind, the meaning's not on the paper, the meaning is with you. And you have your own interpretation of this, and you're like, oh, that means, you know, that Top Gun 2 is the highest rated movie in the last 20 years, amazing. And then you write down your findings and you hand it to somebody else. And then they take it, and they're like, oh, wow, um, lasagna is delicious. And they take it. Like, if the reader is responsible to create the, their meaning, you could never pass on a meaning to somebody else. Do you understand what I'm saying? The author, if the author is disconnected from communication, then you couldn't communicate to anybody else. Because you just have a bunch of people thinking their own thoughts, and you would never bridge the gap between minds. Reader response is a bad way to understand something. When you come to your Bible, you can't ask, what does it mean to me? You have to ask, what does it mean? Another idea, this is the one that the text is up for interpretation, because the idea is that once the author has written it, the meaning is out of his hand. He no longer has any part in it. And you respond to what's going on in the text. And as you as the reader respond to what's happening in the text, you create the meaning. So this might be, look, I like Jordan Peterson as much as the next guy, but... If you read his book, Twelve Rules for Life, and if you hear some of his lectures on the Bible, he's going to dive into Adam and Eve, and he's going to start psychologizing the stories. He's going to start drawing inferences between them and yin and yang and Buddhist philosophy, and you're like, my man, J.B.P., what are you doing? And he sounds really smart, even though he sounds like Kermit the Frog. He's really fun to listen to. You guys should listen to him sometimes. Make your bed. But... When you do that and you disregard what the author's original intention for the text is, you're going to miss the text because then that's just the creativity of the mind that's reading it, creating an entirely new text and communicating that to other people. Again, communication is lost unless you are hunting for the meaning from the author. And just to loop back, we all do this. You all send a text, and you say, no, 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 that was a typo. That's not what I meant. This is what I mean. We all intuitively know that meaning comes from the author. So, (laughs) oh, another reason a text cannot exist on its own, just think about this. Um, I was going to use an example with cornfields. You guys have, like, a lot of cornfields around here? Okay, perfect. (laughs) So... (laughs) Has there ever been some kind of like a Johnstown conspiracy where there was like a big old crop circle in a cornfield and everybody went out to look at it? M. Night Shyamalan was lying to me. Somebody saying, yes, yes, it happened. She's like, no, what are you talking about? Okay, imagine, imagine that one day like the corn is all ripe and everything and then for some reason, you're flying a drone, and you see at somebody's cornfield, all the stalks are bent at 90 degrees exactly, and they all create a pattern that says, like, good g'day, mate, in the corn. And you're like, this is the most insane photo. Which one of you would believe that if you saw all the stalks of corn bent down at 90 degrees that said, good g'day, mate, that wind had come through and randomly done it? Okay, you need to go back to last night. No. (laughs) Right? You would not look at that and be like, man, corn is so weird over here in Ohio. That's ridiculous. You would, what would you assume? You would assume somebody's playing a prank. You would not assume that a storm came through. You wouldn't assume it has something to do with the corn. You wouldn't assume Anything natural had taken place other than somebody playing a prank. Or if you were walking on the beach and a bunch of driftwood you know, came up out of the beach and it spelled like, stop, don't move any further, you'd be freaked out. You wouldn't be like, wow, driftwood is weird. When you see a message, you automatically know it comes from an author. And you'd want to know what it meant yeah, You can multiply examples of that. If you found, like, words in your toast, you'd be like, man, the guy at the bakery was having a good time. You would never just assume that it just happened, okay? Texts don't exist by themselves. In communication, you have an author, a text, and a reader. And meaning for communication to work cannot be with the reader, cannot reside alone in the text. It is generated by the author and contained in the text, You guys with me? You hang so far? Okay, saw some nods. I'm encouraged. Let's go. (laughs) When it comes to the Bible, all right, we had to do the philosophy. Now we're going to apply it to the Bible. The Bible refers to each one of the members of the Trinity pretty closely with, or exactly, with author, text, and reader. All right. It's a really good verse. That's why I put it down there. Genesis 1-1. What is it? Who who memorized our verse? Do it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what does Psalm nineteen tell us? Did anybody do anything of Psalm nineteen? Did I put that down there? I don't know if P. Fitz cut it. What do we got? The heavens are telling the glory of God. And the whole first half of Psalm 19 is more on that, about how the heavens that God has created are telling the glory of God. So what do we have? In the beginning, God, mind, created text, and the text is doing what? It's telling a message, the glory of God. God is identified in Scripture as the ultimate author. And has anybody ever heard of Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche? There's a hilarious website that takes family circus cartoons and then puts Frederick Nietzsche quotes under it. Oh man, gold for like 10 minutes and then you get bored. But he was an atheist philosopher who ultimately took atheism to its logical conclusion, which is basically sadness. He, He came up with what's called nihilism, where nothing matters, what you do doesn't matter. The guy went absolutely crazy. But Nietzsche says this about all those fancy interpretations that we were talking about. Nietzsche essentially concluded that the absence of an author, if you find the meaning in a text or in the reader itself, the absence of an author means the absence of a creator, which meant the absence of objective interpretation and thus the death of the ultimate objective creator, God himself. If you ever study any theology, talk to Pastor Andrew about it sometime and tell you about the death of God theory. That's Friedrich Nietzsche. He says that we killed God because we discovered that we don't need an author to understand meaning. They're all very closely connected here. But the Bible tells us that God is the ultimate author. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And that word inspired, spire, actually has to do with a root for breathing, but it's not inspired, it's not it's actually, it's actually breathing out. So if we're gonna be more literal, it can say all scripture is breathed out by God. We find out that not only is the God the ultimate author of creation, right, God has revealed himself in what? creation, scripture, and in Christ. But he's also the author of scripture. And now we move to text. Author, text, reader. Who do you think the text is? Really? All right, John 1. Let's go, okay, thank you. Somebody whispered Jesus. You guys do not talk a lot. That's fine, that's fine. I ain't mad. In the beginning was the word... And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John 8, 9, right? A text contains the meaning of the author, and that's exactly what we see with Jesus. When they heard, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, as, why did I put 8, 9? Is this 9, 8? What am I doing? That's not even right. Right? That was a typo by me, but I know John 14 has this. 8, 9 is not correct. Okay, John 14. John 14, the, uh, the supper, the last supper with the disciples. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says that he's going to the Father. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me Now, verse 7. If you had known me, the word, the text, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. What does Colossians 1.15 tell us? Colossians 1.15 says that he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews makes it even more explicit. Hebrews 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. You ever see that in Genesis 1? You know, you start your new Bible reading plan every year, somewhere in January, give up in Leviticus or later in Exodus, right? But you start in Genesis i giving you guys a lot of credit if you made it through Genesis. But you start there and you see that God speaks everything into existence and the Spirit is there hovering over the waters. Okay. It says that through Jesus, he also made the world. And Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. All right? Author, text, and then where's the reader? The reader, the Holy Spirit, is shown to be the one who helps us understand these things. He is essentially the reader. Go back to the upper room in John 14, and we see in John 14 uh, 26, the disciples are obviously concerned because Jesus is going away and he's telling them he's about to die. He can't say it any more plain, and they're freaked out. And Jesus tells them. These things I have spoken to you, in verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Romans 8.14, Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit... He says, all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. The Holy Spirit helps people actually take the message and obey it. In Ephesians 1, uh, 17 and 18. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And that only happens when you get the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and of knowledge of him. So God speaks. He speaks in nature. He speaks in scripture. He speaks in his son. Jesus is the word. He is the image, the ultimate text of the father. And the reader, the Holy Spirit, takes that text and applies it to men's hearts. And so even all creation, all communication is grounded in the triune God of Scripture. What we're talking about with One Reality this week, we're not talking about a general God is out there. I'm not arguing that just God exists. I'm saying that without the triune God of Scripture, without Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, communication that we all experience would be impossible communication itself is grounded in the very nature of the Christian God uniquely nobody else has any explanation for this they just think that we're advanced animals and that all falls apart so then how do we get at the meaning of scripture so to get at the meaning of scripture and where does meaning reside see if anybody stayed awake Where does meaning reside? Where do you find the meaning? I'm just going to mouth it like I see some mouths going. The author, yes. The author decides the meaning. And so to understand your Bible, we need to real quick run through the authorship of the Bible. The Bible itself is authored by God and man. Take a look at 2 Peter one twenty one. Sometimes you'll get people who will come up and they'll give you this one. They'll be like, see, I took a drink of water. What now? No. They'll come up and they'll say, well, the Bible was just written down by men. You know, how can you trust something that was written down by men? Um, You have no proof that it's divine and we actually do in that it makes your worldview work, and you can't even know things without it. But you say that it's just written down by men. And that's not what the Bible tells us about itself. The Bible tells us this. <laughs> Peter, in Second Peter, we can start in verse 19. Peter is telling us about the most amazing experience he ever had in his life. He was following Jesus, and one day he got to see Jesus take all uh, three of his disciples up onto a mountain, and then he was transfigured. He got to shed his human veil, his human disguise, and he starts glowing brighter than any launderer on earth can make clothes like more than any bleach can do anything he is glowing he's radiating power and actually all the disciples pass out and Peter this is the last thing he's writing in second Peter before he dies before he gets crucified upside down and last words are important and Peter thinks about this and he just talked about Being on that mountaintop in verse 18, he says, we heard the utterance from heaven. Like he's there with Jesus. God the Father speaks from heaven, says, this is my son. Hear him. They all pass out. And then all sorts of crazy stuff happens. But Peter says this about scripture. He says, so we have the prophetic word, aka the Bible, made more sure to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So scripture itself has a dual authorship. It's not just God and it's not just man. It's God, the Holy Spirit, moving men to speak what he wants. And the long and the short of it is this. When you read in your Bible, what you're reading is not a dictation from God. The people writing weren't just like receiving messages and being like, oh, yeah, that's good. Uh Uh-huh, yeah, that's good, that's good, that's good. Because if you do that, if it's just God telling them what to say and they have no clue what's going on, the meaning is going to be really hard to find, you know? Because, like, if I tell my son, my little little crazy seven-year-old son Joshua, if I tell him something that I want my wife to know, I can speak over his head, and I can tell him, you know, like, go tell mom um, plan A is in effect, and he won't know what plan A is in effect, but maybe we talked about it beforehand, and so Joshua can be like, what does that mean? I'm like, it doesn't matter. Just go tell your mother, and so he runs, and he goes, and he's like, mom, plan A is in effect, and she's like, okay, thanks, right? So he said something, but he didn't know what he said. The prophets who wrote scripture are not that way, okay? Okay? Because it's not God simply turned like being a tape recorder and saying, now write this. We have places in Scripture where God speaks and it's recorded as God speaking, but it's in quotation marks. In other words, we see that that's where God's doing it. Like Exodus three, the burning bush, God is speaking from there. But it's also not just the, the authors of scripture being like, man, you know what I think is really good? I think God is like this. Because the Holy Spirit is superimposing this and he's carrying them along. So how does God do it? God, who holds up the uniformity of nature, he takes and guides everything by the counsel of his own will, he takes these men who write scripture, and he puts them in the exact time, circumstance, with the exact language, in order to write the message that he wants to write. So what you have, when you read your Bible, is this. You have a definite meaning by an omniscient God. All-knowing God. Because God knows everything, And all scripture is breathed out by him and is profitable for what he wants it to be profitable for. God wrote in the exact circumstance that the human author was in so that you would see the truth that spans all ages. The Bible is never outdated, but you would see it come out in one particular circumstance so that the human author who's a part of it is writing locked in to time and space and a circumstance using The grammar that he's using. So you've got God who's over all of it, but the human author who knows exactly what he's saying, writing in a particular circumstance. And when you have that, you have one meaning, one meaning and one meaning only, with tons of applications. And so, how do you understand what the mind of the author, the dual author, had to say? You have to look at the text. And because it's written by humans, it's grounded in time language and circumstance. And so it's really easy. You just take it literally. You take the text on its own terms, okay? You look at the text and what does it say? You have to get the context. This guy is writing at some time. He's writing to a certain group and he's writing for some purpose. It's grounded in a circumstance. Maybe Israel is acting up. Maybe Paul is writing to a church who's in trouble. And then you just look at the language that's used. Use the rules of grammar. And you can access the mind of God writing through the human author and you can find the one meaning that was intended for you. But your author, your reading, your communication is not complete according to the Bible until you as the reader understand and obey. This is the real crucial part for tonight. You look over at Romans 2. Romans 2.17, Paul is writing to people who have the Bible and understand it. And that would be the Jews who have the Old Testament. He says, But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law, a.k.a. the Scripture, and boast in God, and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having the law in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking of the law, do you dishonor God? And so a very important principle of interpretation, to be a consistent reader of scripture is you have to obey. What's our one reality? Our one reality is this, Proverbs 13:13. 13, 13. He who is disobedient to the word in the end will be in debt to it, but he who fears the command will be rewarded. To be disobedient to the word means that you can understand it. To fear the command to obey it means you can understand it. I can't look at my son and get real mad in his face and be like, Blue sleeps faster than Tuesday, now go. He would be like, well, that doesn't make sense. I can't just look at somebody and be like, "Ah!" it has to make sense. To be disobedient or to be obedient, you have to be able to understand. And because the nature of communication, it happens, it's grounded in the Trinity. God speaks to be understood in time and history, and you and I are responsible to act on what we have read. And so for you who grow up in church, you know the Bible, you've had it taught to you, do you obey what's there? Or, like Paul writes to these Jews in Romans 2, 5, are you just storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath? When God will say, I gave you light. What did you do with it? I pray that God would make all of us Not just hearers of the word, but also doers of the word. Lord, thank you that you've revealed yourself so clearly in nature. You've revealed yourself so clearly in scripture. I pray that you will keep us all safe for the rest of the evening and that we wouldn't just immediately forget about these things, but Holy Spirit, that you would drive them home to our hearts. For every place that we are not obeying the word, that we are acting as if it doesn't matter if we're obedient to the word or not, I pray you will put that conviction on us that we're in reality and we can no more get away with disobeying you than we can with jumping out of an airplane and expecting to live when we hit the ground. We live in one reality revealed to us and I pray that we would hear it and obey it. In Jesus' name, amen.